Professional wrestling, like real life, is full of surprises. Hi everyone, it's Freddie Prinze Jr. And it's no surprise I can talk wrestling all day, any day. Kind of like how State Farm agents can talk insurance and help you choose the right coverage. When it comes to important insurance decisions, let State Farm support you with the coverage you need backed with 24-7 support. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card... Right this way. It's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. Did you know that street vending in Mexico has pre-Columbian roots and primarily took place in marketplaces or tianguis? So everything from ceramic cookware, cacao, vanilla, eggs, clothes, all of it was sold. And one of the most popular items was tacos. In today's episode, we explore the history of tacos and street vending. My name is Eva Longoria. And I am Maite Gomez Rejon. And welcome to Hungry, Hungry for History. A podcast that explores our past and present through food. On every episode, we'll talk about the history of some of our favorite dishes, ingredients, and beverages. So make yourself at home. Y buen provecho. So they weren't always called tacos? I thought tacos were always called tacos. No, they weren't always called tacos. So the concept of a taco has existed for hundreds, maybe thousands of years, but its exact origins are unknown. Some say that the mere act of rolling food in a tortilla makes it a taco. But the word taco is actually relatively new. So where did the taco originate? Like, where does the word come from? So according to food historian Jeffrey Pilcher, he wrote a book called Planet Taco, A Global History of Mexican Food. He suggests that the word taco dates to the 19th century, and it first appears in the Real Academia Española, the official dictionary of the Spanish language, defined as a little, like a peg or a plug. Another theory is that the word taco comes from the Nahual Tlalco, meaning half, because the ingredients are put in a taco in the center of a tortilla, which is then folded in half. That makes more sense to me, the Nahuatl word. It could be that. Tlaco, I mean, that sounds, I mean, tlaco sounds like taco, and it means half. But the other thing is that those those little pegs or plugs, miners in Mexico used to put these little pegs with dynamite inside or with gunpowder inside, they would roll them and they would put them in the mines. Um, they were basically little sticks of dynamite. So those mm. were called tacos. So this whole idea and some of the first, you know, written recordings of taco were tacos de minero, miners tacos. So it was sort of like this little bit of dynamite that you're eating. So, mm. so that, that's why there are those two different theories, but the word itself dates to the 19th century. So it's not that old. 
Yeah, because because there's writings of Spanish conquistadores like Bernal Diaz del Castillo who mentions warm corn tortillas on Moctezuma's table. So, you know, it was discussed and that the tortillas were used as sort of a spoon. But that technique of using like tortillas as a spoon, that's also, in like I said, in India where they use the naan mm-hmm. as a spoon. I mean, there's a lot of cultures that use a piece of something as a spoon. Exactly, exactly. Every culture has something, right? And every culture has something that you, you know, every street food, it's sort of things that you eat with your hands as well. But some can say that a taco, you know, that the soul of the taco is the corn tortilla or the tortilla, but the original tortilla, the original taco would have been with corn. Yeah. And then, so in the early 19th century, a lot of people began migrating to Mexico City you know, for opportunities or region, bringing their regional cooking skills with them. But every region obviously has different foods and Mexico City became a melting pot of tacos. And I've experienced this because there's a, a taco, a mercado on, on Saturdays near our house in Mexico City. And you have Michoac- tacos from Michoacan, tacos de, de Yucatan, tacos that like there's all these different stalls and every region is so different. That is what's so interesting, I feel, about Mexico City is that, that it's such a melting pot of cuisines from the entire country. And this is where, I mean, you could say that the original taco culture is in these markets, like the one that you're mentioning, you know, today. One of the most famous pre-colonial tianguis is this marketplace of Tlateloco that was in, you know, modern day sort of downtown Mexico City, but these tianguis are are all over. Like you have mm-hmm. one by your house in Mexico City. So mm-hmm. this is this this culture of street food, this culture of street food from all over the country has existed um since the 19th century. Tiangi means what is that Nahuatl as well? Tiangi? Yes. The word tianguis um comes from the Nahuatl word tianquitzli. Well, two words from the Nahuatl word tianquitzli, which means open air market, and tiamiki, which means to sell or trade. So the most important markets, pre-colonial market was the one at Tlatelolco. Um, and you could say that they are modern day flea markets or modern day pulgas, modern day, mm-hmm, you know, where you mm-hmm. people come and sell everything from food to clothes to cookware, everything that you could possibly find. But but the, but that that was really the, the soul of Mexico when everybody would come together and buy what they needed. One could argue that the Piñata District in downtown Los Angeles is a modern-day tianguis. Yeah, I've been there and I love it. And I'm so excited because Hungry for History got a chance to talk to one of these vendors in the Piñata District. Her name is Merced Sanchez. Uh, mi nombre es Merced Sanchez. Soy vendedora ambulante. Y... She's not only a businesswoman, but she's also an activist. She's originally from the city of Puebla in Mexico. And she's been working at the Piñata District for about 18 years. Vendo ropa de bebé. And she sells everything from baby clothes, um, artisan bags from Puebla. She sells Mexican candies. She sells hot dogs, enchiladas, mole, esquites. And she has the most amazing tacos dorados. She has chicken ones and potato ones. 
I have the tacos de papa. Crispy, just she's frying them right there with this green salsa, like raw, fresh, bright green salsa and a little bit of, wow. of queso fresco. Oh, my God. So good. This topic of street vendors is so relevant today because so many food vendors are getting harassed uh, by the cops, by community. Te confiscan todo, te tiran todo. And one of the main reasons she got into activism was because she witnessed food vendors getting harassed by the cops and she saw their food get thrown out, items that they had for sale get confiscated. Yo vi muchos compañeros deportados. She said she even witnessed people getting deported, like single mothers crying after having their shops destroyed. Yeah, it's really, really devastating. And she was sort of seeing this happening around her, seeing it happening, you know, to her as well, just being harassed for for just trying to make a living. Um, so she told us that she started asking questions, like, what, what can I do? Like, what can be done? Una compañera me dijo, oye... Dicen que hay una organización que nos quiere ayudar. And a friend of her told her about an organization that was trying to help them. Um, and that's when she found out about ELAC, which is the East L.A. Community Corporation based in Boyle Heights and East L.A. So with the help of others, she started organizing and she made a promise to herself. She said, I don't care if this takes me 20 years, I'm going to do it. Her husband even told her, like, who's going to listen? This is, you're just wasting your time. And she told him, at least I'll have my head held high knowing I did something because people don't know how much we are suffering. It's really incredible. And, you know, her hard work paid off. Um, it took 10 years. It didn't take the 20 years, but it took 10 years. And in 2018, the state passed a law legalizing sidewalk bending. Wow. Because of her hard work. God, bravo to her. Yeah, she's incredible. Thanks to her hard work. And she was organizing people. When she went to that first meeting at ELAC, there were seven street vendors. And she realized there's no way that we're going to make a dent if it's just seven of us. So she was going from vendor to vendor to vendor, spreading the word. It's like you do, you know, mm -hmm. when it's time to yeah. vote. She was going to every, until she had hundreds of vendors. They went to Sacramento. And I mean, they got these laws passed. Wow. Well, if y'all are in Los Angeles, make sure to check her out in the Piñata District. It's called Sammy's Elotes y más. Stop by and try the tacos dorados. Don't go anywhere. We get into the history of street vending in LA and the modern day struggle this community is facing. As an actor, a producer, and a proud Latino father, my days can get very busy, which is why I make sure to dedicate time to what's important, like supporting my community through my work, sharing my Colombian and Venezuelan culture, and being present for my family, which is everything to me. Hey everyone, it's Wilmer Valderrama, and we're reflecting on what matters most. I start by giving thanks for good support in my life whenever I need to make the big decisions. How about you? If it's insurance you need, State Farm is there to help you choose the right coverage for you. And State Farm offers great support 24-7. Just call an agent. State Farm is also a big supporter of Michael Tuda Podcast Network by helping to share our Latinx voices. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite Michael Tuda shows wherever 
You get your podcast. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. So when did street vending in Los Angeles begin? It must have been, I mean, this must have been so long ago. It was. So the city of LA was established in 1781. So Mm -hmm. long ago, but not that long ago. But so Mexico lost California in 1848 in the Mexican-American War. The entire Southwest. California, Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada, Utah, Texas. Texas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So by 1850, California was part of the U.S., um, but L.A. was only 70 years old at the time. So it went from being this little Mexican pueblo to a city with an Anglo majority, like in very short period of time. Um, in his book, Los Angeles Street Food, a history from tamaleros to taco trucks by Farley Elliott, he says that the first signs of street food in LA mer- emerge after 1876 when the Southern Pacific Railroad linked the city to the rest of the US and the city really began to come to life. So we start seeing tamal vendors. Um, mm-hmm. So not necessarily taco vendors, um, but we start mm-hmm. seeing tamal vendors selling from carts, from like little wagons in what is now downtown Los yeah. Angeles. Well, and it's so interesting, like at this time, like by the 1890s, there was already, the city government was already trying to sanction or severely limit and curb tamal vendors, Chinese food vendors. They were really restricting them from being able to sell or banishing it altogether, which obviously was a reflected a larger issue of discrimination towards Mexican, Mexican-American, Chinese, any other, right? Any mm-hmm. other. Absolutely. So there was a lot of early efforts to regulate street food. And by the turn of the century, the city forced tamal cart owners to pay for operating licenses as a way to like weed them out. And and this only helped destigmatize the market for tamales, but it didn't slow it down. Like Mexican food was just too popular. They were like, people wanted their tamales. Yeah, people wanted their tamales. People wanted the really good food. It was just, you know, it was it was all about discriminating them. Um, yeah. So in 1910, these segregation laws between white and non-white vendors limited the presence of Mexican and Chinese vendors in downtown L.A., um, so they continue to thrive outside of the downtown area. 
But over time, we start seeing these, you know, sit down restaurants and these sit down restaurants would further marginalize street vendors. But with each new wave of immigrants came a new wave of street vending, you know, a, yeah. a rebirth of street vending. Well, specifically the wave of, of Mexicans, you know, by, yes. the, by the 1920s that migrated to the U.S. during the years, uh, obviously the Mexican Revolution having a big part of that. But the tradition of like street vending is one that's, that travels with them. And so we start seeing uh, more than tamales by this time. We start seeing the tacos and, you know, that they were all the rage in L.A. But like you see a lot of vendors. I, the first time I moved to L.A., my greatest memory is Olvera Street. I love Olvera mm -hmm. Street. I went to a festival down there and I was like, what is this place? And Olvera Street is one of the oldest um, uh, streets uh, opened in 1930. And there's so much history down there to who could own the the stalls. And if you look at Olvera Street, you'll see it's an alley and the storefronts are on the other side. And what happened was Mexicans weren't allowed to own a storefront in the 1930s. So they could sell in the back in the alley, but they couldn't have a storefront. And the alley became more popular than the storefront. And that's how Olvera Street became um an icon and, and really a, a heritage site of Los Angeles. It's it's protected. It's celebrated now. Um, so it was, it's a very, I, I love Oleta Street. If you guys have a chance, go check it out. It's a very cool, very, very cool uh, place. I love it too. Um, and so in her, in her book, in the book, Food, Health and Culture in Latino Los Angeles by professor of Latinx food studies, Sarah Portnoy, she says that in the mid 1930s, Los Angeles banned vending on sidewalks downtown and then in major business districts. And she goes on to say that these actions restricted sidewalk activity and made sidewalk vending more challenging. Um, mm -hmm. During the course of the 20th century, then LA became a car city. Pedestrians and vendors were pushed off the sidewalks and the streets lost this former vibrancy and, and commerce. So this creation. Yeah, that's why LA's, LA's a driving city. Like mm -hmm. we, we're not, a, we're not New York. We're we not New walk. York. No, yeah. it's not a pedestrian no. city at all. And it's so sad. And so this hostility towards street vendors grew and persisted for, for decades. Yeah. Well, you know, what's so funny. Cause you know, if you have ever flown to LAX, there's a Tom Bradley terminal and it's the international terminal. And, uh, and I've always like, oh, why is the name Tom Bradley? Like, I didn't really understand why. And they were like, no, he was a really good mayor. And in, in the seventies, the LA city council voted to ban sidewalk vending, uh, throughout the city. But it was Tom Bradley, who was the mayor that vetoed the ordinance because he knew it would affect poor people. And he thought it was really important to encourage creating small businesses and, you know, giving poor people some economic mobility. Um, I mean, despite this, sidewalk vending was officially made illegal in 1980. And at the time, you know, street food was banned. But then there was a spike in migration and a demand for this cultural food, uh, again, by this wave of new immigrants. And so a lot of times vendors were seen as criminals and a lot were arrested and beaten and served jail time, the ban basically turned vending into this political issue and it, and it motivated street vendors to organize themselves. And so um, a lot of, I mean, I think a lot of organizations were formed, but uh, in 1987, they began meeting and they established the uh, the Association of Street Vendors, ABBA, 
Asociación de Vendedores Ambulantes. It turned into a political issue because street vending really bumps up against immigration policies, police mm -hmm. harassment, human rights issues. And so um, in 1994, the special sidewalk vending district ordinance <laughs> was enacted to allow selling in, in eight areas of Los Angeles as part of this like pilot program, even though they did this, there was still like continuous harassment by the LAPD. And, you know, so the vendors continued to protest. And, you know, a lot of this still continues today. These, this pilot program was in the 90s, right? And between mm -hmm. 2010 and 2019, police arrested over 43,000 people for illegal sidewalk vending. Um, but there's an estimated 10 to 12,000 street food vendors in LA, selling everything from bacon-wrapped hot dogs to quesadillas to tacos, fruit, all over Los Angeles. You know, and you wonder, like, why do they continue to do this despite risking fines, police harassment, even mm -hmm. imprisonment? Most of them are undocumented and have very few employment alternatives, and they need to provide for their family, and street vending offers them this economic mobility. I mean, they yeah. are these incredible entrepreneurs. I mean, they do yeah. so much. I mean, and street vending is technically legal in Los Angeles now, but mm -hmm. all the vendors say the permit is so out of reach because it's either too expensive. You know, the process to get one is super deterring from getting one. And so they still have a lot of, a lot of challenges. And I think, you know, operating without a permit is sometimes the only option because they have to make a living. LA City Council approved a measure to decriminalize street vending. So that was 2018. And this, this was with the si Safe Sidewalk Vending Act called SB 946. Um, and then in 2022, SB 972 was passed. And this attempted, you know, to facilitate greater access to food vendors. But like you said, um, mm -hmm. some of these permits are just impossible. Hungry First, we got a chance to talk to the executive director of Inclusion Action, Rudy Espinosa, to talk to us about what his organization is doing to support the street vendor movement. Tell us who you are and how your organization helps um, support the street vendor movement in Los Angeles. Sure. Uh, my name is Rudy. Um, I uh, serve as the executive director of Inclusive Action for the city. Uh, Inclusive Action is an economic justice organization uh, that really focuses on uh, getting capital into the hands of people that haven't had it before. Uh, we're, we're a certified uh, financial institution. We're a community development financial institution. So a big piece of the work that we do is we provide microloans and business coaching to entrepreneurs that include street vendors, but also brick and mortar businesses. And we also have a division that focuses on policy advocacy. And we, uh, ha we prioritize that because we know to reach economic justice, we have to address the systems that have caused uh, uh, income inequality in our city and in our country. And so um, as part of that advocacy work, one of the campaigns we've worked on over the last uh, decade is the effort to legalize street vending. Uh, we're one of the co-founders of the LA Street Vendor Campaign and then the most recent California Street Vendor Campaign. What is happening right now within the street vendors or among the street vendors that you think people should be most aware of? I think that people should know 
the street vendors have been struggling for many, many years, decades even, to be included formally in our economy. This has been even beyond our work. There's been many people and other generations that have worked on trying to legalize street vending in Los Angeles. And what I want people to know is that there's a history here um, that's beyond many of us. Um, and I want folks to know that in the last few years, that have, there has there have been great strides forward due to the work of the coalition and, and street vendor leaders in our city. Uh, starting in 2016, we began to pass policies in Los Angeles and in California that have created pathways for street vendors to finally get permits. Uh, in 2018, Senate Bill 946 passed that was championed by then-Senator Ricardo Lara that decriminalized sidewalk vending throughout the state of California and asked cities to create systems for sidewalk vendors. And then this past year, we passed Senate Bill 972 with Senator Lina Gonzalez that changed the retail food code to support street food vendors that were having a hard time getting public health permits. So people should know that there's these new laws in place um, that the entire state of California is getting adjusted to. And so folks should be optimistic, but we also should be really vigilant because just because we passed this laws doesn't mean that everything's amazing now. Now our focus is really about making sure these laws are implemented properly. Um, and so we just had this big passage this past year for street food vendors, but the county health departments throughout the state of California and cities have to learn what this law is about and how to implement it properly. And so that's the work. The work continues on for all advocates is to make sure that we're, hold, we're holding our cities accountable to these new regulations. So what can one do to help? Mike, you, you're hosting a podcast, and I think we need people like you that are elevating stories. We need people that are designers that are thinking differently about how we design our cities and how do we design you know, virtual uh, environments for people to tell stories. We need activists. We need community organizers. We need lawmakers. So my ask to friends that say that they want to get involved is to consider what is your gift and what's your skill, and how can you contribute that skill to a coalition? And so once you identify how you want to help, I would say get plugged in. There's a lot of amazing activists out here and organizations that are doing really great work. Um, if you're interested in microfinance, you have inclusive action. If you're interested in community organizing, you have organizations like Community Power Collective and Chila that are focused on immigrant rights. If you're a lawyer, um, we work with an amazing team of public counsel to provide free legal services to street vendors and other businesses. And so there's, there's so many ways to get plugged in. And so what I tell people is like, find your skill and then think about who are the, try to learn about the organizations that are already doing work and just, you know, you know, get, get involved with them. They need your help. Buying from them as well, just on a, on a, on that totally. scale, but of then course. also. And tip them. And tip them. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And tip them. And, and I think, um, you know, uh, the one third thing that I want to tell folks uh, that are listening is the role of our lawmakers. Our lawmakers are dealing with a variety of priorities and maybe in competing priorities. Here in LA, we have a huge housing crisis, for example, and homelessness is a huge priority for all of us, or it should be. And I think that if somebody cares about street vendors or small businesses or food entrepreneurs, we have to make sure those lawmakers hear from us. Mm -hmm. And they often probably, they probably don't. <laughs> so the more that any constituent calls their local city council member, their state senator, their assembly member says, hey... This is where I live. You represent me. I'm really concerned about the street vendor on the corner here. 
and I want to make sure that they have what they need. What are you doing about that? Once we ask questions to our elected leaders, it plants the seed in their mind that they need to work on that. And unfortunately, in the early days of the campaign, when we were asking leaders to step up, they would say, nobody's complaining about this. So why should I prioritize this? Nobody's saying anything about street vendors. And so um, the more we call and engage, the better. There's a lot of amazing folks on social media now that are showing, telling stories or co covering the harassment that vendors are facing. Those are all things that contribute to lawmakers paying attention. If there was one word to describe the people that work at street vendors, what would that word be? I'm sorry, I'm kind of pausing because I'm a little bit, uh, I'm a little uh, sort of uh, moved by the question. Um, I'm thinking about an entrepreneur that I just got a Slack comment from my colleague, uh, my colleague about um, uh, my word is visionary. And um, the comment that I got in our organizational chat is one of our borrowers uh, who had a mobile, was a mobile vendor. Uh, they came to us years ago and they were like barely breaking even with their business. And uh, they, they applied for a loan and they wanted to basically buy out the loan that they had on their little hitch truck, on a little trailer that was connected to their pickup truck. And they were, you know, trying to figure it out. They're like, we work hard and like I we're cooking for people and I'm just not making it work. And so I just got a note of like how well they're doing now. It was like three or four years later. And they sold that that mobile f facility. And I think that they're opening up a brick and mortar now. And it's like, they're doing well. And um, I think the entrepreneurs in our city, in our communities are visionary people. The, in, in the face of so many obstacles for their family, they're saying, I'm not going to give up. I'm still going to get out here. I'm going to be on the public right away on the sidewalk. That's scary to put yourself out there. Think about the vulnerability that's required. And they're saying, I'm going to keep continue to struggle because I see, I, I envision something better. And um, man, how can we not support them? You know, is what I think. So um, visionary is my word for them. That is beautiful. Thank you so much, Rudy. Don't go anywhere hungry for history. We'll be right back. I often get asked why I'm such a big fan of wrestling, and it's all thanks to my grandma. Growing up, we would watch matches together, and that bond turned me into a lifelong fan. Hi, I'm Freddie Prince Jr., and on my podcast, Wrestling with Freddie, we know how important it is to have the right teammate, because things can get pretty tricky quick. So, when things get complicated and you need help, State Farm gives you options. They show you what's possible for ensuring what matters to you. One of the things that matters to me? Sharing memories and revisiting wrestling's greatest moments. And with State Farm's support of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, I get to do just that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite Michael Tura shows wherever you listen to podcasts. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. 
With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. So I think this is a dumb question. When did tacos become popular in L.A.? Because I feel like in the founding of L.A., it must be in the Constitution. No? I, mean- I know. <laughs> well, by the 30s, the, the tacos were, you know, it's just the wave of immigrants from Mexico that were bringing their foods with them. And by the 1930s, tacos were, were super popular in Los Angeles from trucks to sidewalk setups. And it's funny. Yeah, it's funny that you say trucks because, you know, the taco truck is like the famous thing. Actually, food trucks in general were birthed out of street vendors, mm-hmm. right? And so you the see lancheras. these gourmet, these gourmet uh, food trucks now. And it's almost a bit of a gentrification, right, of yeah. any migrant food because all most of the street vendors is immigrant food. And now you have you know, these very popular food trucks and food truck festivals, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, and these these trucks are like decked out. And for some reason, that's okay, mm-hmm. right? That's accepted. That's applauded and embraced. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you look at sidewalk setups, it's like, eh. Yeah. They don't have, the trucks don't have the stigma, you know, because yeah. the, they were the original, the loncheras, the, they were the, the tamal vendor from the turn of the century became the lonchera. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would see them parked. You still see them sort of when they're construction workers. So they're parked outside. You still have the ones that are not all, you know, mm-hmm. for, made for hipsters that are for Mexican, Mexican American construction workers. Um, so mm-hmm. you still see them, but, but now, um, there are so many. I think it started. I would say what, like around 2007 or eight with the, with the kimchi quesadillas, the Roy Choi, the Koji taco truck. And mm-hmm. then with the rise of social media, um, places like East Los Angeles starting to become gentrified, like you said. So, mm-hmm. and then with social media, you have the truck saying, I'm going to be here. I'm going to be there. So it kind of went hand in hand. And now the food trucks, they still face a struggle, not as much as the uh, street vendors, but now they're, they're super hip. I mean, the Mariscos Jaliscos, which is one of my favorite trucks in the city, food trucks in the city. The late Jonathan Gold featured them in the list of 101 best restaurants in LA. It's a truck. And it's not mm-hmm. a hipster truck. It's just a really good truck. They have the best shrimp tacos in the city. What's your favorite kind of taco? Oh, my, I love tacos al pastor, I think. I have Me to too. say my favorite. Me too. Oh, I do. So good. I, I'm a big tacos al pastor fan. You know why? Because they're the most similar to Mexico. Like the, the Mexico City tacos that I have, tacos al pastor, I can have them in East LA and it's pretty much the same. Mm. They're consistent across borders. <laughs> They're so good. There's a truck 
called, there are two places where I get my Tacos del Pastor fix in LA. Leo's Tacos. They're all oh, over. Yeah. yeah. And then there's one, I don't know what it's called, but it's across the street from Lowe's on Pico Boulevard with just the pineapple and lime juice and some radish. Oof. That's my so, Yeah, favorite. I like, for Tacos del Pastor, I like the pineapple, onions, and cilantro. So what is, for you, what's the soul of the taco, the tortilla or the filling? The tortilla. What? I'm the, it's the filling. The tortilla is the same. No, because if you don't have a really good tortilla, then like if you take, you pick up the taco and the tortilla falls well, apart. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. You've ruined the experience. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Also, also you're right because my chicken tacos, Pepe loves because mine are America, Americanized <laughs> because mine's not the Taco Bell taco, but it's not the just heat the tortilla, the corn tortilla up. I fry the corn tortilla. So it's like I a had crispy it. taco. When I yeah. was in, when I met you in Spain, you made them. They were incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. the frying of the tortilla. So you're right. I actually have to agree with you. Tortilla is pretty, I think it's 50-50 then. But I Maybe. actually think it's, I think it's 33-33-33 because the salsa makes a big difference too. The salsa <laughs> makes a huge difference. And the fresh lime juice. I feel like I can't have a taco without squeezing some lime on it. Yeah. Well, if if anybody has seen my Searching for Mexico, Mexico City episode, we did a taco tour in Mexico City. And there's so, like you said, Mexico City is really the melting pot of all the tacos of the country. And I went with the taco blogger and it was like, she knew exactly where to go. The guy that's there that makes the, um, the sweating tacos. What is it tacos called? Tacos sudados. Yeah. Tacos de yes. canasta. Yes. Yes. <gasps> Which was I've never delicious. had one. Delicious. I never had one either. And there's, he had three different ones and they were hot and warm and he'd been there all morning and he brought this, all this stuff from his house. And I'm like, surely this is going to be like, eh, because you know, it's two hours old or whatever. Nope. It was. They were still warm. Warm and delicious. And he had these different salsas and, oh man. Do you know that one of the earliest photographs of a taco from the 1920s is a woman selling those tacos de canasta. I, so basically they put the tacos in a basket and then cover it with like some sort of plastic and they no, can they stay warm. No, they cover it with towels. And they don't get soggy. They're super soft and that's why it's a good tortilla because it doesn't fall apart. We hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I know I did. I'm actually super hungry now. I think I'm going to make myself some chicken tacos. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. Hungry for History is an unbelievable entertainment production in partnership with iHeart's My Cultura podcast network. For more of your favorite shows, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. Professional wrestling, like real life, is full of surprises. Hi, everyone. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. And it's no surprise I can talk wrestling all day, any day. Kind of like how State Farm agents can talk insurance and help you choose the right coverage. When it comes to important insurance decisions, let State Farm support you with the coverage you need backed with 24-7 support. 
Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.